Good morning again. Welcome to King's Cross. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, We are going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 today. You can be turning there in your Bible. It's about halfway through. Uh, If you were here last week, you know that we started a five-week sermon series on our core values. And uh, I kind of gave an introduction to what that is, what that means last week. I'm not going to go through the whole thing again. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon. Uh, You'll hear a bit of an introduction to why we're doing a core values series. And also you'll hear a sermon on truth, which is our first and really foundational core value. Like I said last week, the, the other ones aren't necessarily in any particular order, but that one does come first for a reason because we believe it's the foundation for all the others. This morning, we're talking about community, our second core value. And as I said last week, this series is a little bit different in that typically what we will do is is pick a book of the Bible and we'll work our way through it section by section and sort of preach and explain what's in the text and apply it to our lives. In this series, we're approaching it more from a a sort of topic-based approach where we're picking the topic, the core values, and then we're asking what Scripture tells us about that topic. So we'll start in Ecclesiastes 4. It's kind of a jumping-off point, but I'm going to be bouncing around to different texts like I did last week. Ecclesiastes 4, beginning in verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. This is the word of the Lord. Human beings were made for community. We're not made to live alone, not made to live in isolation. We see this very practically in some sort of metaphors and examples that Ecclesiastes 4 mentions. We see it from a more theological angle if we go all the way back to the beginning of Scripture. Genesis chapter 2, and God makes the first human being, Adam. He puts him in the garden to work it. And God knows from the beginning that it is not good for Adam to be alone. He knows that he needs a companion. And he wants to show Adam this, so he goes through this whole elaborate exercise of Adam getting to name all the animals. And he names one after the other after the other, lions and tigers and bears. And he sees them all and he names them. But with each one comes this creeping sense that this animal is not a helper fit for me. This is not the kind of companion that I need. And so Adam sees this and God causes this deep sleep to come over Adam and he takes a rib out of his side and out of it he forms a woman, Eve, and he wakes Adam up and Adam sees her and the first words out of his mouth are poetry. So some of you engaged young men, when you see your wife walking down the aisle soon, just be prepared with some poetry. He says, alas, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. What he's saying, first and foremost, isn't even about marriage. It isn't even about romance. What he's saying, first and foremost, is, alas, this one is like me. She's a a woman. She was taken from man, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That companionship speaks to something that we all need. Again, even before we think about marriage, which is something that we're not all called to, we all are called to companionship, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Well, how are we doing? In the West, in the United States, like, do people have the sort of community and companionship that they need? I don't think that we're doing very well. Two indicators of this. One, loneliness is up. 
All the data is telling us that people are more lonely in this country than they've ever been. There was a report out of Harvard, a study done by Harvard in 2021, reported that 36% of all Americans reported feeling serious loneliness, but that included 61% of young adults, ages 18 to 25, and 51% of mothers with young children feeling serious loneliness. For what it's worth, our church has a disproportionate amount of both 18 to 25-year-olds and young mothers. Lori Santos, who's a professor at Yale, uh, was talking about the negative health side effects of loneliness. So it's not just that loneliness is a bad thing in and of itself. It's not just that loneliness is unfortunate, but it actually comes with all kinds of negative health side effects. For example, people who are lonely are more likely to experience dementia, heart disease, and stroke. They're likely to die younger. And overall, being lonely impacts your health at an equivalent level of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. C.N. Belock, who's the president of Bernard College in New York City, talked about how social isolation literally rewires your brain. It, it literally changes the, the architecture of your brain. Moreover, she writes, the neural underpinnings associated with isolation are similar to those of physical hunger. In other words, to say that you're starving for human contact is not far from the reality of what's happening in your body when you're isolated with other people. We all know that we long for and we need community. This was illustrated uh, perhaps most memorably in our culture in the 2000 Tom Hanks movie, Castaway, where uh, he is the, the sole survivor of a plane crash and becomes best friends with his volleyball Wilson because he's so desperately in need of connection. So on the one hand, loneliness is up. The flip side of that is that friendship is down. Research shows that human beings need at least five close friends to get the meaningful connection that we need for a thriving life. But a 2021 study by the Survey Center on American Life reported that only 38% of Americans have five or more close friends. Maybe you're counting right now. Not only that, but that number was 63% 30 years ago. So in the past 30 years, 63% had close friends. It's dropped all the way down to 38%. Half of people now in the U.S. have three or fewer close friends, and 12% of people say they have no close friends. Uh, this is an area where we see a dec the decrease in friendship has been even more prevalent among men than among women. The number of men who report having no close friends increased by five times over the last 30 years. Uh, so we've now hit uh, 18 to 25-year-olds, women with young children, and men. We've got almost every single person in this congregation. Why is all this happening? Like, why are we so lonely? Why are we so isolated? Why are we so alone? I'm going to give you a list, and I'm sure many more could be added to this, but I'm going to give you a list of seven, yes, seven, impediments to community. Seven things that keep us from the kind of meaningful companionship and community that we need. The first two are what I'm going to call cultural impediments, and the next five are just sort of personal impediments. So the first two, the first is what we'll call hyperconnectivity. Uh, you may have heard this phrase. It just refers to the digital world that we live in, right? Like we are so constantly connected to one another. You have uh, in your pocket, or probably more often than in your pocket, in your hand, uh, the most like uh, 
powerful uh, computer, like a computer that people couldn't have imagined 40 years ago, and it lives in your pocket, and it connects you to anybody that you want in the world whenever you want. So we're, we're super connected to one another, and you would assume that all of this would give us greater opportunities to fulfill our social and community needs. In some ways, that's the promise that they were sold to us on, right? Like, buy this thing, get this social media app, whatever, and you will be more connected to people. But ironically, the exact opposite has happened. Many, many studies are showing that there is a direct correlation between social media use and social isolation. Laura Condioto, who's a professor of theoretical philosophy, have argued that this hyperconnectivity creates a unique and new sort of loneliness, what she calls extended loneliness. Basically, if loneliness stems from relationships that are unfulfilling, from relational unfulfillment, and relationships that are mediated through technology are inherently unfulfilling because they're disembodied, right? like embodiment is a, a crucial part of connection, then even though we're constantly connected all the time, what we're connected to is relationally unfulfilling. As Sherry Turkle put it in her book, which is aptly titled Alone Together, when technology engineers intimacy, relationships can be reduced to mere connections, and then easy connections become redefined as intimacy. Put otherwise, she says, constant connection comes with new anxieties of disconnection. Constant connection comes with new anxieties of disconnection. A hyper-connected world is a disconnected world in the ways that actually matter most. And that's the world that we live in. The second cultural impediment to community is the American dream. Um, I learned from David Platt's book, Radical, that anytime you can just bash on the American dream, it's a great, great approach uh, to preaching. The American dream basically has, as its like vision of the good life, has individualism baked into it. Like, what is the American dream? What does it mean to make it in American society? Among other things, it means as an individual or as a family to get to a point where you are completely independent of other people, where you do not need anything from other people. In other words, if you need community in this country, it's seen as a weakness. You can't take care of yourself. And as a result, what happens is when we achieve the American dream, when we achieve total independence, we still join communities sometimes, but we only join communities for the purpose of affirming our own individual identity or helping us in our sort of self-expression project. And when they no longer do that, we just leave them and we go find other ones. In fact, as an aside, I think this is why lots of people have left their churches in the last five years. Because all of a sudden some cultural conversation happened and they realized my church is no longer an appropriate like, expression of myself, so I'm going to go find another church that will do a better job of that. So one, hyperconnectivity. Two, the American dream. Now the personal impediments to community. All of these I'm going to position as fears, like five fears that keep us from community. But underneath all the fears is an idol. And that's the way that idols work, isn't it? Idols are good things that we make ultimate things. And when we make them ultimate things, we become afraid to let go of them because what happens if I lose this ultimate thing? And so they produce fear in us. So the first fear is the fear of losing your true self. The fear of losing your true self. I met somebody recently who I've seen a few times just in passing, and I invited this person to church. And they seemed interested, but they very quickly asked me, will your community, or what, what's your community's stance on XYZ? And it was a matter of, like, identity. 
And it just struck me, it was interesting, the first person that somebody wanted to know about a church was basically, will your community fully affirm my identity as it is, or will it challenge me to change in some way? And if it challenges me to change in some way, I'm not interested in being a part of it. The thing is, we all inherently know that a flourishing community requires that we turn down some part of ourselves. If you are married, you know this, right? A thriving marriage does not happen with both people turning up all the parts of their personality to 11. Like, if if both people do that, there's going to be friction. And if you're like, not us, our marriage is great, Uh, we we both are fully ourselves, like, wait a couple years and you will change, or your spouse will change, and then one of you is going to have to take a back seat in some way so the other person can take a front seat, and vice versa. That's how marriage and all communities work. But we're terrified of that because we also believe that personal fulfillment is found in self-expression. Like, I can't be fulfilled, I can't be satisfied as a person unless I can fully express myself. And I know that a community is going to keep me from doing that in some way, so I'm just not going to join a community. I'm dating myself here, but um, I'm probably not the only Goo Goo Dolls fan in the room. Uh, You might remember the line from their song, Slide, that says, What you feel is what you are, and what you are is beautiful. There, there has never been a better summary of the sort of like ethos of 21st century Western life. Maybe they were ahead of their time. It was 1997. But the sense that like what you feel, your desires, that is your identity. That is what you are. And what you are is beautiful. So express yourself fully and find a community that will let you do that. What's the idol underneath this? It's the idol of our identity. We're so obsessed with identity in our culture right now like with personal, individual identity. And so we think, if I let go of this idol of identity, then I'm going to join a community that's going to make me turn down some part of myself. And that's terrifying to us. The second fear is the fear of restraint. Communities restrain us. They place limits on us, on our choices, on our time, on our options. And we don't like this. It rubs against us, in fact, from a a very early age. One of the ways that uh, communities restrain us is by imposing some measure of authority on our lives. Like when we we join a community, we're submitting to some authority in the community. And we don't like that. And my my almost three-year-old is figuring that out right now. Um, We will sometimes say to her, this has been happening more frequently, hey, we need you to do whatever. And she'll say, well, actually, I'm doing this right now. Very respectfully, very kindly, but dad, well, actually, I'm doing this right now. She doesn't like that my authority as her father is, is, is placing restraints on what she can do at any given moment. And none of us is more mature than she is, to be honest, right? Like, we're, we're the same way. Well, actually, I'm doing this right now. The idol beneath this fear is the idol of freedom. We all want to be free from all restraints. And joining a community might limit that. The third impediment or fear is the fear of diversity. Now you might hear this and you might think, Taylor, that would be a good thing to preach in like Williamson County, but not in East Nashville. Like we love diversity in Nashville, in East Nashville, right? Like some of us moved to East Nashville to be a part of a more diverse community and then we ironically helped make it less diverse. Uh, but, but we think that people here love diversity, but I actually think that lots and lots of people in a community like this, and maybe lots of you in this room, have probably recently had this visceral gut response to a person. Maybe when you saw them, maybe it was based on what they were wearing, maybe it was based on the bumper sticker on their car, 
or the message on their t-shirt and you thought, I could never be in a community with that person. Or if you didn't get there consciously, you just were repulsed by them, right? What would happen if they were a part of your church? What would happen if they were a part of your community? We're afraid of this kind of diversity. And by the way, in some ways, that fear is actually greater in a community like East Nashville. This is one of the most progressive parts of town. And it's interesting that the data has shown that, that progressives in America are less likely than conservatives to have friends across the political aisle. 37% versus 53%. By the way, that's down 15% since 2016. So for a lot of people who live in East Nashville, 2016 just like broke their ability to have friends on the opposite side of the political aisle. And what happens when, when, when we, we won't be friends with people across the political aisle, when we're afraid of diversity, is this ironic offshoot of individualism, which is tribalism. Lots of people are writing about the rise of tribalism in the U.S. How this works is in the absence of real community, we become isolated as individuals, right? And then when we're isolated alone as individuals, we look around in the culture around us and scary things are happening and we realize, like, I can't, I'm not okay by myself, so I need to join myself to something. And so in the absence of real community, I join a tribe. But a tribe is not the same thing as a community. David Brooks writes, community is based on common humanity. Tribalism is based on a common foe. Tribalism is always erecting boundaries and creating friend-enemy distinctions. Politics is war. Ideas are combat. It's kill or be killed. Mistrust is the tribalist worldview. He says tribalism is community for lonely narcissists. Tribalism is community for lonely narcissists. What's the idol beneath this fear of diversity? It's ideology. It's, I hold so tightly to my ideology that I'm terrified of being in a room with somebody who disagrees with me. Fourth fear is the fear of being let down. The fear of being disappointed. Some of us are afraid that a community will hurt or disappoint us. And maybe rightly so. Like Maybe that's happened to you. And so you carry that fear with you. Others of us just end up letting perfect become the enemy of good. So a couple years ago, Lindsay and I met a family and uh, we were talking to them and they were looking for a new church. And we were hearing about their background and different churches that they had been to. And what we discerned pretty quickly was that there was this pattern in their life where they would spend a few months at a church getting a little bit more plugged in, a little bit more plugged in. And then they would get like close to, to membership, to joining. And they would find some little nitpicky thing that would disappoint them about the church. And so they'd back away from it. And they'd find another one, and they'd do the same thing, spend a few months there and get close to joining, and then find some little thing that disappointed them, and so they would back away and not join it. And what, what occurred to us is, like, you're letting perfect become the enemy of good. You're looking for the perfect community that's never going to disappoint you in any way, so you're just deciding, I'd rather be a part of no community than a part of an imperfect community. We're afraid that community will let us down in some way. What's the idol here? It's idealism. It's this, this, this strong desire and belief that we can be a part of a perfect community. And so ironically, it keeps us from being a part of any community. The fifth and final fear is the fear of vulnerability. There is perhaps nothing scarier than being truly known by people. I think that deep down in our hearts, all of us think, if I'm fully known, they will not fully love me, they will not fully accept me. And so we have to choose between, am I going to be fully loved or am I going to be fully known? And we choose to be loved, but of course, ironically, if you're loved by people who don't truly know you, it's not real love. It might be kindness, it might be generosity, but it's not true love. 
The idol here is safety, emotional safety. It's not worth the risk of getting hurt, we think, and so we, we build up these walls to protect ourselves. I think all of these fears taken together have landed us in a place where we have decided as a society that the risks of life and community outweigh the rewards. We've decided collectively that the risks of life in community are greater than the rewards, but the the rub is that the way of Jesus requires that we live in community. A community is not an optional add-on for the Christian life. There is no Christianity apart from community. And so what do we do? Look to the life of Jesus, the early church, and we see this play out, right? That they're in community all the time. People have said that in the Gospels, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. He's always eating with people. I would add, with the exception of when he's spending time alone, like praying all night with God. So Jesus is always either in intentional silence and solitude with his Father or in intentional community. With the crowds, with the twelve, with the three, Peter, James, and John, you could probably add to the, the close friends, the close confidants. Maybe uh, if you read the Gospels, I think you could add Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. So Jesus, like we talked about having five close friends, I think he, he has those, right? And the early church adopted this. We read in Acts 2, that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. The early church was not merely about consuming some good music and some good teaching. And so many churchgoers in the West, in America, go to church for that reason, right? to hear some good music and to hear a good teaching. And this is, by the way, another reason why I think a lot of people stopped going to church after COVID was because they realized when they were stuck at home doing church on the internet, I can get much better music and much better teaching somewhere else without having to deal with people, without having to get my kids dressed and drive across town. And so they just never came back. The word that's translated fellowship in that Acts 2 passage is the Greek word koinonia, which my guess would be, if you've heard two Greek words, the first would be agape and the second would be koinonia. Uh, Koinonia is defined as close association involving mutual interests and sharing. Close association, mutual interests, and sharing. In other words, you don't have koinonia with your coworkers. You don't have koinonia with other members at a country club. You probably don't have koinonia with your neighbors. You may not have it with your biological family. There's a sort of essential, like at the level of of the essence, unity that you share with people when you have koinonia. And the early church had it. So the question is, if if that's what the way of Jesus, that's what Christianity requires, how do we get over over the hump, over all of our fears of community? And I think that the answer is that if we let go of these fear-inducing idols, we might see in the church a type of community that actually heals some of our deepest fears. If we let go of these idols, we might find in the church a type of community that heals some of our deepest fears. I'll say quickly, I mentioned the two sort of cultural impediments to community. I'm not really going to talk more about those because I don't think the solution to those is an inherently Christian thing. I think like at some point you just have to realize the, the individualistic American dream is bankrupt. And at some point, to use... Uh, a phrase that Andy Crouch used in the book, The Life We're Looking For, you have to just exit the empire of hyperconnectivity. Like You just have to realize this is not good for me, and you have to set some guardrails and have some self-control. But in terms of the five fears, I do think the gospel speaks directly 
to these. And so I'm going to take them again one at a time. First, the fear of losing your true self. The church is a community that actually helps you become your true self. The church is a community that actually helps you become your true self. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4 that unbelievers are callous and give themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. But he says, that is not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus to take off your former way of life, the old self, that is corrupted by deceitful desires. What's Paul saying? He's saying you have an old self, the old self with impure desires, and and that self is actually a corruption. The old self with all of its desires is not your true self. Like What you feel is not what you are. There's a truer version of yourself. And he goes on and he says, the old self is corrupted by deceitful desires and you are to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. Created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. God created us and designed us to live in a particular way. And that is the new self that we're becoming when we put on Christ. And the church helps us do that. The church is not a community that demands that you not be your true self. It's a community that invites you in to discover and become your true self. The church helps you become the version of you that you were made to be. Second, we have a fear of freedom, but the church is a community that gives you the right restraints, restraints that lead to true freedom. Not all restraints are bad. We have a very limited view of freedom in this country where we, so there's two kinds of freedom. There's negative freedom or freedom from, and there's a positive freedom, which is freedom to. Freedom from some things, freedom to other things. We only think of freedom in terms of negative freedom. We only think about freedom from, right? Think about our, like our political slogans on the left and right. Keep your hands off my body. What's that saying? It's saying the government is not allowed to, to place any restraints on what I do with my body. On the other hand, keep your hands off my guns. The government is not allowed to place any restraints on the amount or kind of guns that I have. This is just negative freedom. Neither approach takes into account the positive freedom, the freedom to, that might be available to us if we were willing to lay down some of our negative freedoms. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 5. He writes, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul's saying, don't submit to the wrong restraints. In this case, the Old Testament law, the Old Testament identity markers, like those are the wrong restraints. They do not give you freedom. Don't submit to those. But then he goes on later in the chapter. He says, you were called to be free, but don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. That word serve is is the Greek word that is elsewhere. The the noun version of that is translated slave in the New Testament. So how is Paul saying, you were called to freedom, therefore make yourself a slave to other people? He's saying, you were set free by Christ and the way of love means laying down some of those negative freedoms so that you can serve other people. Loving other people is a restraint. It places restraints on you. You got to go help people. You got to serve people. You got to do stuff. You got you to limit some of your own opinions and thoughts and parts of your personality. But that's the way of love. And Paul finishes that sentence by saying, the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. We could add other restraints that church places on your time. Uh, it asks you to be at a certain place at a certain time every week. 
And we think that it's such a nuisance to, to be at church every Sunday, but actually it, it's a way that, that, like a restraint that helps us to live with the grain of the universe. God creates the world and he, he bakes in this principle of six days on, one day off, one day set aside, particularly for rest and for the worship of God. And so when we accept the restraint of going to church every Sunday, what's it doing? It's helping us live in alignment with creation. It places restraints on our time. It places restraints in terms of authority. And we're back in the garden again, right? The first sin was a rejection of God's authority. It was God saying, don't eat that tree. And Adam and Eve saying, well, actually, we're going to do that right now. And the consequences were disastrous. But when we receive good authority, it actually gives us more freedom. And in the church, there's authority. It's not man-made authority. It's given by God. It's, it's ultimately to Christ. But living under that good authority helps us to live in greater freedom. Third, we're afraid of diversity, but the church is a harmonious community. It is diverse, and yet it is united. I'm going to preach a whole sermon on this in two weeks, but very quickly, I'll just say, uh, consider the disciples. In Matthew chapter 10, Matthew records the 12 disciples that Jesus called, and he includes, among others, Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. Now, you might as well include in a list of disciples uh, Matthew the MAGA hat wearer and Simon the Antifa activist. And that would not actually do justice to how far apart these two were. Guys, this, we're, we're, in, we're among Jewish people under Roman occupation and oppression, and Matthew, the tax collector, has sold himself out to the Roman government to tax his own people who are under oppression and to get rich in the process by extorting more from them than they actually owed. And Simon the Zealot is part of an insurrectionist group that thinks the approach and the response to Rome is basically to do like underground terrorism to try to overthrow the government. And these two with Jesus are like making s'mores together around the fire. Are you kidding me? And granted, I'm certain that there are elements of both of those approaches that like not only did they have to turn down in community, but probably that Jesus rebuked them for, right? But the point is like, I mean, it, Jesus calls people into discipleship who are vastly different ideologically. And yet, they share koinonia. The shared interest, and their shared interest is their greatest interest. It's the one that tops all the other ones. And I'm sure there were probably some marshmallows thrown around those fires, but the point is they still live together in worship and obedience to Jesus and on mission for Jesus. Fourth, we have this idol of idealism. We're afraid we're going to be let down. The church is a community of grace and forgiveness. In the church, you will be let down. At this church, if you haven't already been let down, you will be let down. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about this. Bonhoeffer was an uh, early 20th century German theologian. He was part of a group that organized what's called the Confessing Church, which was basically a, a group of Christians in Germany that, uh, that opposed the Nazi party's, or the, the German state church's complicity with the Nazi party. And so they organized this, this confessor's church where they said, we're not, we're not getting along, you know, like we're not coming on board with the Nazis. And he organized this sort of secret like seminary of 150 or so people. And he wrote a book called Life Together, which was the manual for how that, the people who lived in that commune basically were going to live their lives together. And he writes, and this is a long quote, but I think it's 
amazing. He says, just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate with ourselves. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world. He does not abandon us to those rapturous experiences and lofty moods that come over us like a dream. Only that fellowship which, which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight. Begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. He says the, the sooner that this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community, this is the money quote at the end, he who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. What's Bonhoeffer saying? He's saying, the better you become disillusioned with your church, the, the sooner you become disillusioned with your church, the better. And if you love the idea of a church that lives in your mind more than you love the actual people who you're sitting in this cafeteria with, you're going to destroy your community. Either you're going to destroy the church or you're going to destroy your ability to live in that community. And guys, this is so important for us because we're planting a church, which means that many of us are here because of our own wish dreams that we're injecting into this church. Like many of us are here, me, chief among us, saying, I want us to build a community that looks like X, Y, and Z. And if we operate with that all the time, then what's going to happen? We're going to destroy the actual church that is here, the actual people that God has brought together. And that includes being open to getting let down. But when we have had extended to us the greatest grace imaginable from God, we can redirect that grace to one another when we're let down. And we can become a gracious and forgiving community. Paul says it in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Finally, the church is a community where you can be fully known and fully loved. We're afraid of vulnerability, but the church is a community where you can be fully known and fully loved. Genesis 3, human beings sin for the first time. And what's the first thing that happens? They realize they're naked and they're ashamed about it. And so they make these cheap fig leaf outlet, out, outfits to try to cover themselves up and hide their shame. Uh, they immediately knew there's something unlovely and unlovable about me now. And so I have to hide myself. I can't be fully known. If I'm fully known, I won't be truly loved. But the gospel comes in. Romans 5.8 tells us that it was while we were still sinners, while we were the most unlovable, knowing every single thing about us, knowing more about your sin than you know about your own sin, that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to save us. You are far more sinful than you even can comprehend. And yet you are far more loved by God than you could ever dream or hope. That is the gospel 
And when we realize this, we can extend the same grace to one another when we come together with Christ between us. We say, I am fully known by God and fully loved by him. You are fully known by God and fully loved by him. Therefore, we can let ourselves be known to one another and be loved by one another. And the church is the only community that I'm aware of where this can happen. There's there's basically two kinds of community in our culture. On the one hand, you have the sort of like, you are okay, you are good just as you are, you don't need to change a single thing about yourself type of community. And we appreciate how welcoming and accepting those communities are, but if you are perfect just the way that you are, there's no room to ever be challenged to grow. There's no room to improve at all. It just is static. There's no vision. On the other hand, you have communities that basically say you need to change A, B, C, D, and E about yourself before you will ever be accepted in this community. And while we can appreciate the desire to grow and to change and be better, it creates a sort of exclusive judgmental culture, right, where people can never measure up. The gospel is unique in that it says you, through Christ, are fully loved and fully accepted by God, full stop. And you are called to imitate Christ. You're called to grow in your affections. You're called to grow in your love for God and other people. And because that's the gospel, the gospel uniquely creates the church where we can say to people through Christ, every single part of you is accepted here. Full stop. And we're called to follow Christ. We're called to imitate him. We're called to put off the old self and put on the new self and become the truest version of ourselves. The church as a community is a laboratory of God's grace where the gospel gradually loosens our grip on these idols and frees us to be transformed together by God. No church is perfect. Again, you will get let down. But the question is, are we willing to take the risk that being a part of an imperfect, sometimes disappointing community might be better than chronic loneliness? Are we willing to to take the risk that letting go of your vision for your true self might be better than isolation? The risk that letting go of your obsession with freedom might be better than endless drifting. The, The risk that letting go of your tribe and your tribal identity might be better than hating half of the world and being hated by half the world. That being a part of an imperfect community might be better than being a part of no community at all. And that being truly known by people with all the risks of getting hurt might be better than not being known at all. For what it's worth, guys, in closing, I think that we're doing really well at this. I think that you all as a church are doing really well at this. We went last month on a, on a leadership retreat and I asked all the, the leaders, pastors and deacons to, to complete a survey that was basically a survey on our core values. And the responses on community were through the roof. It was like, 4.95 out of 5 with a couple people being like, yeah, I didn't want to give all fives. You know, It was like, you're doing really well at this. But let's keep pouring gasoline on that flame. Like, Let's not let up on that because people desperately need this. And so with that in mind, a, a few closing invitations. One, if you are a member here, do not settle for the appearance of community. Do not settle for the appearance of community, going through all the motions of going to church, going to a discipleship group, getting occasional coffee with people, all the while wearing the fig leaves. Like, let yourself be known. You will not receive the benefits of community if you are just settling for the appearance of community. If you are receiving those benefits, if you are benefiting from real community here, don't let that benefit stop with you. 
Like we are, we, we are given grace by God to extend it to other people. And so if you've received the benefit of true community, don't let it stop with you. Don't let it be a cul-de-sac. If there is somebody at church that you don't know, that you haven't met, that you haven't talked to, like talk to them. Introduce yourself. And don't just introduce yourself. Ask them to get lunch. Invite them over into your home. As much as Lindsay and I would love to have every single person in our home who visits at church, we can't do that. So, like, invite people into your life. Don't all do it at once. If eight of you, like, tackle some introvert like me after church, it's going to be really disappointing. Don't do that. But using relational intelligence, (laughs) extend the community that you have received to others. If you're someone who attends here sometimes and hasn't quite dove in yet, I just encourage you to make the dive. And it doesn't have to be here. Like, hear me saying, I we'd love for you to be a part of this church, but the important thing is that you're a member of a community that, that is shaped by the gospel. So if it's another one, great. But dive in. It's worth the risk. And finally, for all of us, you can draw them to your mind right now. We have desperately lonely friends. People that we pass, people that we come in contact with who are dying to be a part of a community. And they may not even believe gospel. But it's, it's my hope, it's my thought that if, if lonely, hurting people are brought into the community, a community like a church, not only might they find community, but they might find the gospel when they're there. And that's what we're hoping for, right? That's what we're praying for.